Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China to see the post about this episode and the posts for all the past episodes, comment sections, contact info, maps, pictures, the works. It's all there. But last week, the Han Dynasty decided, you know what? Hey, maybe stability won't be that bad. Maybe we should like, I don't know, give it a try? Kidding, that's not how it went down, but stability did find itself in the Han after the relaxed and thoughtful Emperor Wen assumed the role of Emperor. He relaxed laws, lowered the taxes for all, and cut spending as well as further entrenching Confucian thought into the backbone of the dynasty. Oh yeah, he also was slowly building up the competence of the northern Han defense forces. And look, of course, not everything was perfect. One man was not going to fix it all. But balancing the books and creating some solid ground for the dynasty would be an invaluable springboard for later emperors to, in a bad analogy, carry the baton. That's not to say Emperor Wen didn't have his own trials and tribulations, though. He did. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 29, When Wen's Foundation Set. Things were getting better. That much was simply undeniable. But there were indeed ups and downs, believe it or not. For starters, during that heyday period of the early reign of Emperor Wen, it was, yes, I mean, filled with unequivocal gains for the dynasty. But events did still crop up that tested Emperor Wen. It wasn't all just sunshine and rainbows, though I did make it sound like that last episode. But for example, in 174 BC, Emperor Wen's last living brother had sort of rode the coattails of his brother just a little too much. So this brother, who I'm not going to name just for the sake of not flooding you all with extraneous names, well, he started doing ceremonies for himself that were only allowed for the emperor. Emperor Wen, patient as ever, loved his brother and saw this for what it probably was. His little brother had probably let the new change in family fortunes, I mean, his brother is the emperor after all, well, he let this all get to his head. So Emperor Wen didn't do really that much besides, well, nothing. His brother then began to push his own envelope. Royal ceremonies was definitely a no-no. That could have seen some pretty messed up punishments based on the things we have heard already, but nothing came of it because in the grand scheme of things, sure, it's really not that big of a deal. It wasn't like he was declaring himself as emperor. Then he began issuing his own edicts. He appointed his own prime minister for his little region, and he began executing people. And then the real kicker, he started handing out titles. 
Ceremonies are really an aesthetic thing most of the time. But issuing things only the emperor himself could do? Mm -mm. Now, you can't do that. Emperor Wen may have been relaxed and patient, but he wasn't weak. His relaxation and patience was not out of weakness. Instead, it was from strong moral convictions. And even though this was, you know, his brother acting out, he gave his brother one last chance to cut it out or else. The brother was not only flagrantly overstepping his own authority, but he was also pissing off a lot of people in the process. A lot of really important people. People that the emperor needed happy for the sake of the dynasty. The brother, by this point, was just too far gone. All of the mutual friends and family that said, yeah, man, um, mm, your brother, the emperor, he's not too happy with all of this. Please don't push it. Well, that all made about zero difference. In fact, for some reason, it actually pushed him in the opposite direction. Yeah, he decided to try and revolt. As you can guess, a spoiled royal member who made all of the real officials around him mad really had no friends. So within a second, the conspiracy was completely unraveled, and Emperor Wen had no choice but to exile his own brother. Look, did he get off easy? Yeah, probably. But you have to sit back and not just look at the broad strokes here. This brother here who was making unofficial royal proclamations and executing people was not a genius. He wasn't plotting real, capable ideas that had the chance of doing any real damage. He wasn't in any way a threat to the emperor. And yes, most importantly, he was the only surviving brother of Emperor Wen, so he did have that going for him. Eventually, all of that caught up to the brother mentally, and he killed himself. He got exiled, sort of maybe realized, oh man, I really did it bad this time. But this was something that would cause great pain to Emperor Wen the rest of his life. If my brothers, though, ever tried to assume the role as the older brother, I was, am, and still will be much less forgiving. I'm talking to you, Luke. I am the emperor of the siblings, and that won't change no matter how much you try. And in fact, the more you try, just the harder I'm going to come down on you. Kidding, of course. Four years later, Emperor Wen had to make his uncle commit suicide after he himself got too big for his own britches and killed an imperial messenger. So that's the second family member now who sort of stepped out of line and got a little bit too comfortable. Ironically, this uncle was one of those who was sent to talk to this rogue brother and to get him to cut out the shenanigans. So it was not like Emperor Wen was just riding high at all times. I mean, it surely seems like it. But he had to constantly make very hard personal and bureaucratic decisions alike. By the 160s BC, he began to delve, Emperor Wen that is, began to delve a little deeper into his own superstitions. No, he wasn't going full out hippie grandma in the commune, no. 
he just began to think about these things, his superstitions, a little more. Being now somewhat vulnerable, though, he is human after all, he got fooled pretty good. Around 164 BC, Emperor Wen got hoodwinked by a guy who brought a jade cup in and professed that its symbols, which were utterly gibberish, along with this guy's own knowledge, indicated a regression in the sun's pattern. Yeah. Even before this jade cup, this ancient Chinese Rasputin, in a sense, had convinced Emperor Wen to build a great palace to the five gods. Of course, this all meant this cleric, named Xin Yuan, was amply rewarded with treasure. Tell big tales, get paid. I myself know some people who would love the job that Xin Yuan had deviously earned himself. But alas. In the winter of 164, the fraud was exposed. It was utter nonsense. Someone pointed out this guy has no real knowledge of anything, so it's no surprise he was summarily executed. And hey, while we're at it, so was his entire clan. Emperor Wen then looked around, blinked his eyes a few times, and said, Okay, enough of that crazy nonsense. Now, he didn't really say that, but it is chronicled that his fascination with superstition stopped then and there. And I mean, yeah, completely understandable. By now, his reign was turning into a long one, though. Dang, I mean, look at the time. Because by 158, yeah, 158, we've had an emperor that reigned for almost 20 years now. Oh my gosh, look at us. But in 158, he faced one last major challenge. And of course, the last and best challenge had to come from no one else but the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu decided that clearly small-time raids were not getting any response. So what about bigger incursions? Could we get away with more? They decided to test that, and they poured into the northern commanderies of Shang and Yuanzhong, which in turn provided a potential straight shot right to the capital at Chang'an. In a clear showing that things had changed, Emperor Wen prepared a massive and capable defense in the event that the Xiongnu decided to go for broke and attack the capital. Luckily for everybody, the Xiongnu at this point were not that hell-bent. But in the process of gearing for war, Emperor Wen was immensely impressed with one Zhao Ya Fu. And he was so impressed that he made it clear to his own son through written instruction that should the need arise when he was emperor, that Zhou Ya Fu was to be named commander of the armed forces. Now, we will get into this more next week when big conflicts occur, but as we know, Han Dynasty generals were given power on an ad hoc basis. They were not to hold on to all their soldiers and their power and influence once war was over. This is something, of course, that the Roman Senate surely would have liked when Julius Caesar came waltzing in at the head of his army. So the Han Dynasty picks their generals when the need arises. And Emperor Wen just told his son that, Hey son, when you're emperor, for me, make sure you promote Zhou Yao Fu to the commander of the army. 
And Emperor Wen left these instructions to promote Zhou Yaofu in a crisis situation because Emperor Wen was aware that his time on Earth was nearing an end. Ever the crafty and caring ruler, his last act would occur after his death. In his will, he declared that the usual mourning period for the death of an emperor be massively lowered to just three days. No more month-long mourning, no more multiple months of mourning. And he did this to limit the burden that his death and the subsequent long mourning would have caused the people of the Han Dynasty, and of course he did. From start to finish, Emperor Wen was really a class act, and the Han Dynasty was better off for it. Was he perfect? Of course not. But compared to everyone before him in all the dynasties, he's been one of the best so far. And as they say, success promotes success. Now, this is not always the case. Qin, Marcus Aurelius, and then Joaquin Phoenix. Commodus. I think I've given enough hints, though, that his reign and all the great stuff he did would indeed continue on after him. By the time he died, taxes were just 3.3%. The army was well-equipped, the people were generally pretty happy, and the books were balanced, just to name a few things. He had ruled through the advice and teachings of people like Jia Yi and had ruled through Confucian thought. Filial piety is a huge facet of that. So it is no surprise the emperor would attend to his own sick mother whenever he could in her last days. He lived by what he preached. But he'd also done other things. He had pushed the expansion of agriculture. I mean, I can keep going on and on. Emperor Wen was personally and politically a house of Confucian fire. And in 157 BC, Emperor Wen would pass away. After he died in 157 BC, his son, Crown Prince Qi, ascended to the title of Emperor Jing of the Han Dynasty. And just like that, it was time for someone else to take the baton. During his father, Emperor Wen's reign, the dynasty had been perpetually dealing with the potential solutions to the feudal king's issue. It really just was not a system that was going to work in the long run, and everyone knew it. But Emperor Wen made one of his few mistakes when he did not make that big policy shift Jia Yi suggested back last episode and installed his own people over all the major principalities. He didn't end up doing that. He sort of dithered on it. And Emperor Jing was about to jump right from the frying pan into the fire because in 154 BC, just three years into his reign, the feudal king said, you know what? We don't want Emperor Jing limiting our power. I think we should all revolt. And revolt they did. Look, the Han was unified, quote-unquote. But China, as we know well by now, was not ruled totally top-down. And instead, these feudal kings were meant to rule their own little areas, sometimes not so little, and then submit to the emperor. 
we are essentially sitting right now at a pre-warring state situation here. By the time Emperor Jing had ascended to the role of emperor, for example, the Wu state of the dynasty began getting more and more powerful, and thus obviously began to swing its weight around more and more. There were some um, interesting reasons the Wu state was not a fan of the new Emperor Jing, and it's an important one, albeit a very strange one. So in the 170s BC, date is not confirmed, could be 175, 176, even 179 BC, the heir to the throne of Wu, Liu Xian, that's his name, came to the capital, fair enough. It's a royal visit, he can do whatever he wants, and it's going to be fine. So this heir apparent, this future king of the Wu state, sat down with future emperor Jing, who at the time himself was only the crown prince. He was not the emperor yet. So these two future rulers sat down and decided to play one of the most popular board games of the day. Can you guess what it is? You're right, it's Liu Bo. We went over how popular this game was back in our episode about the Han society, but let's just say that the crown prince and this heir apparent to the Wu state were competitive. Let me preface by saying that this is an ancient chronicle, and the details are sketchy. But in short, future Emperor Jing and the heir to the throne of the Wu state were having a time gambling and playing. But then, Liu Xian, the future king of the Wu state, offended the future emperor. Words were said, but it culminated in the crown prince of the Han throwing the big wooden board at Liu Xian of the Wu state and thus killing him. The future emperor of the Han dynasty just killed the future king of the Wu state. All over, all over some small gambling. Yeah, so it's no surprise the king of Wu was exceedingly upset at this, and animosity towards the Han only grew from there. Chao Tsuo, the Han official we mentioned last episode, looked around at this and everything that was going on and realized, just as Jia Yi did, that having pissed off kings with growing power and growing authority was not going to fly. So he and Emperor Jing once he did in fact become emperor, sat down and started stripping these provincial leaders of power and authority. It was time that they finally dealt with this problem. By 154 BC, the Han were carving up the states and implementing imperial commanderies all around the dynasty to further pull power away from the local kings and into the hands of the Han's central bureaucracy. And indeed, in that same year, 154 BC, seven states led by the Wu would indeed rebel. Personal hatred of the Han from board game deaths combined with the power being siphoned away by the Han led to the seven states attempting a last-ditch effort to rebel to retain their own powers. And while the rebellion was empathetically crushed, it was massive. And the ramifications of a Han defeat to the hands of the rebellion 
would see China almost certainly fall back into a warring states dynamic. Within 15 years of this rebellion, the Han would have total control and would be turning their forces north to once and for all get rid of the Xiongnu. But those are stories for next week. Next week, the rebellion of the seven states and the beginning of the famed Han Xiongnu War. Oh yeah, I'm excited. But remember to go check out the website, and as well as to follow and rate the show five stars, because while it may not seem like a lot to you, it really does mean a lot to me. I'm really excited for what's about to happen. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China. <laughs>